Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Michael Cunningham, and my new novel, Gay, is um, about to come out, which is a fabulous and slightly terrifying experience. Michael Cunningham is probably best known for his Pulitzer-winning novel, The Hours, which follows three generations of women affected by the classic novel, Mrs. Dalloway. His new novel, Day, follows a family throughout a single date, April 5th, across three years, 2019, 2020, and 2021. Together, this family navigates complicated relationship dynamics, loss, and uncertainty brought by the pandemic. I recently spoke with Michael Cunningham about the way we understand time, this book's unique structure, and more. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. I'm Beth Golay, and here's my conversation with Michael Cunningham. This conversation might be difficult with regard to spoilers, so I'm going to ask you to set us up with a brief description of the book, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, My novel is set on a single day, divided into three sections, morning, afternoon, and evening, but each of the three sections takes place in a different year. Morning is in 2019, when nobody has any idea about the pandemic that is soon to arrive. It focuses on a sort of complicated, extended, odd family, particularly a married couple, a man and a woman who are both kind of complicatedly in love with the woman's younger gay brother. Then in the next section, in afternoon, we are with the same people, but we are at the height of the pandemic and we follow them through that. And then evening is set two years after morning in what I will call the aftermath of the pandemic with more than due respect for all the people for whom the pandemic is not over. But the the time, the year when our lives began in certain ways to resemble our lives before the pandemic, when we weren't wearing masks, when we weren't worried that mail was infectious and we weren't cleansing our groceries, things like that. Can you describe how you arrived at the idea to structure the novel like this? Because, you know, not only, as you mentioned, it's told across three different April 5ths, but in each Mm -hmm. section, we follow this family first thing in the morning, then in the afternoon, and then in the evening. So even when we put the three sections together, we still arrive at a day. And the novel seems to have a a lot to say about the way we understand time. Was this part of why the story takes on the structure? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Yes, it's, it's, you know, you you could say that 
any narrative is in some way or other attached to time, sort of nails, a story sort of nails to time, a definition. But some novels are more, shall we say, timey than others. Um, I was about halfway through another novel when the pandemic struck, and I felt like I couldn't write a novel set in the contemporary world and act as if there was no pandemic. Um, that would be a little bit like writing a story set in London during World War II and not mentioning the Blitz. And the novel in progress just didn't, there wasn't really a way to work in the pandemic without it looking like, hmm, I guess he had to work in the pandemic somehow. After a day or two of of serious thought, I had been working on it for a long time, I, I, I put it aside and started something entirely new. So then the question is, how do you write a novel that takes the pandemic into full account, but still focuses on characters? Because as far as I'm concerned, that's what novels are about. It's it's about what it's like to be this person living here at this time. And I didn't want, although I felt like I had to, had to include the pandemic, I didn't want it to be a novel about the pandemic. There are plenty of other superior sources of information about the pandemic. So I wanted it to be about the lives of these people who, like literally everyone on the planet, was going through something catastrophic. And I came up with that structure. Let's see them before, during, and you know, quote, unquote, after. It seemed like the best way to keep the pandemic in the picture without it entirely obliterating the people who were also in the picture. There seemed to be another aspect of time in the novel. And I mean, I noticed a few descriptions of characters feeling in between big moments in their lives. The opening section describes early April as not yet true spring. And then you have the characters feeling a neither here or there-ness, a not-quiteness about some of their relationships. Talk to me about this liminal space in the novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, for one thing, whether or not one is writing a novel during the pandemic, um, you don't want to write about people who are doing just fine. Lots of people are doing just fine, but one doesn't really write novels about them. I kind of feel like, certainly as a reader, as well as a writer, um, I don't really need to read novels about People who are people who are happy and fine, and everything's just working out. I bless those people wherever they are. But I, when I read a novel or a story, am looking for some sense of what's the word company, if you will, in life's inevitable difficulties. So these people are already troubled in their way. They're 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 surviving their troubles. 
you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a marriage going awry. It's, it's, it's the brother who can't seem to escape the sort of love sphere around him, though both his sister and her husband are obviously impossible love objects for him. It's about sort of relatedly about a man who gives his sperm to a woman who is a close friend and they had agreed that he will be uninvolved and then when the baby is born he finds that he does not want to be uninvolved it's it's that it's it's um i mean you know every every everyone has their own body of difficulties but these people have have their their difficulties which would probably have resolve themselves one way or another but are brought into very much sharper relief by the pandemic which i think was an experience shared by many of us so family relationships seem to be at the core of this novel whether it's husband wife uncle and niece brother and sister mother and child and each of these relationships involve some kind of growing up or coming of age that challenges those relationships or changes them in some way. At one point in the novel, Robbie asks, do you think we ever survive our childhoods? Is this question at work throughout the novel? Yeah, 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 it, it is. Um, I feel like many of us are sort of dogged and haunted by our childhoods for all of our lives, not necessarily doomed or dominated by them, but it is, I think, a particularly appropriate question for a brother to ask a sister. I have a younger sister and and we are great friends and we are very much adults, but we are also, she's also still four and I'm also still six. <laughs> and so, you know, embattled when we're at the same high school together. Um, and that's as it should be. We, we want, we, I hope that we want our histories to, to, to follow us into our futures. As an aside, I've, Lived in Kansas my entire life, mm. and I've never seen the second largest ball of twine. But after reading <laughs> Day, I'm compelled to do so. And I'm also, you know, compelled to read George Eliot's Mill on the Floss. But let me oh, get boy. to why I'm bringing up the twine. While, yeah, yeah, yeah. while the novel focuses on one day, April 5th, mm-hmm. it's this April 5th across three years, there also seems to be another memorable day that shapes a lot of the main characters in this book. And that's the day that Dan and Robbie arrive in Kansas to see the world's second largest ball of twine. I also didn't know it was the second largest. It seems like this is a defining moment for Dan, Robbie, and even Isabel, yeah. who decides to marry Dan after this road trip. Talk to me about the relationship between Dan, Robbie, and Isabel, and how this earlier day in their lives perhaps haunts or or hovers over the days described in the novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like when we look back at whatever of our lives we've lived so far, we may see 
points of which we were unaware at the time when things sort of turned a little bit. Um, when 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 the dice tumbled and and things started to change, and yeah, um, they're still in high school. Um, Dan has graduated. Isabel is still in high school, as is Robbie. And Dan, who at that age is a sort of oh well, I won't say rock. He, he's a he's a rock god, man. K. He he certainly has, is not playing stadiums, but he is this beautiful boy with like Botticelli hair. Um, a figure of local romance who is in love with Isabel for all kinds of reasons, among them the fact that she's not really moved by him. Um, it's one of those eternal verities whereby the beauty is most interested in the one who says, yeah, beauty, schmooty, who cares? You're still kind of dumb and uninteresting. Um, and Dan consciously, unconsciously decides that if if he can, I'll say seduce, not 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 of course erotically, sexually, but if he can sort of get her little brother on his side, maybe that will give him an in. And so Dan local rock god goes on a road trip with Robbie who is a slightly nerdy 16 year old they go to this is true there is the second largest ball of twine in Kansas <laughs> I've done rigorous research about this um, they, they thought as I'm sure many have that by just why we have a sort of destination however crazy um that they were going to see the world's largest ball of twine, but actually they've only gone to see the world's second largest ball of twine, <laughs> uh, which doesn't matter. They have a fantastic time. One of those sort of young boys on the road things. And when they come back, they are so elated, so entwined with each other, so full of this funny little adventure they've had, that that Isabel begins to wonder what it would be like to be part of that. And that's what sort of moves her over the line and eventually leads her to agree to marry Dan. So the title day clearly talks about the one day, April 5th, in three consecutive mm -hmm. years. But I also would note, like, whenever characters would reference day, like, that's not a good dress for day or, or Robbie summoning wolf every day or a memory of the aforementioned day from more than 20 years ago to which Isabel returns. And then in contrast, I would notice the references to night, you know, the owls at night or how the woods are alive with the spirits of animals and the dreams of trees, mostly active at night. And I'm going to ask about the owl in a moment, but talk to me about this day versus night. Is there something there or was I just making it up as I was reading? No, no, you were not at all making it up as as you were reading. It is all about day and night. Um, 
And sometimes a novel just suggests its own title, and sometimes it doesn't. And this one didn't exactly. Um, but as you point out, it it is very much about time, sort of sort of on the more about time spectrum of an art form that's always about time. And I just thought, yeah, um, Virginia Woolf had long ago published a story called Night and Day. Um, and having already lifted one title from her with the hours, I really thought, oh, she will just haunt me forever if I, <laughs> I, if I steal, steal a second one. And, you know, it's funny. Sometimes a title, if it doesn't present itself immediately, is a little bit, I'm going to say like naming a baby, though I I never liked the assertion that that your novels are your babies. No, your babies are your babies. Your novels are your novels. But um, just calling it day, just something that simple, just sort of stayed with me. And that sort of, grafted itself onto the book and became and became the title. So talk to me about the owls and what they might symbolize. Owls, yeah, there are owls throughout. Um, writing a novel, writing fiction, I think, of any kind is a sort of balancing act between what you intend and what you just sort of intuit. There are things in a novel you planned. There are things in a novel that just sort of came up. And by the way, there are things in a novel that after it's published, people point out to you and you go, oh yeah, right. Um, though you were not really aware of certain patterns and leitmotifs when you wrote it. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, without, Without much planning, without any particularly self-conscious sense of what an owl represents, um, in the very opening section, Isabel sees an owl in a tree in Brooklyn, which is kind of impossible. Um, there are owls in Central Park, but not really in Brooklyn. And then, and then an owl kept appearing or they or 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 appearing or not appearing but but audible in the distance in in each of the sections um and honestly I mean, you hope a recurring image has meaning beyond itself but you're also looking for images just to sort of tie the story together just just almost literally like a series of 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 hopefully hidden cables that, that, that keep it from just feeling like random pieces. One of the most interesting characters in the novel for me was Wolf, you know, born oh, of the yeah. imagination of Isabel and Robbie, who, you know, Wolf lives this rich, albeit fictional life on social media. And it seemed like Wolf was perhaps a conduit for Isabel and Robbie. He got to experience a lot of things that they wanted for themselves and for each other. So the question I have about Wolf is is regarding his Instagram followers and who the narrator reminds us they don't require any sense of narrative or consistency in Wolf's posts. What do you think Wolf's followers did require of Wolf and why were Isabel and Robbie so committed to giving it to them? 
You're absolutely right. Wolf is sort of, he was sort of invented by Robbie and then Isabel quickly got on board. And Wolf is character Wolf, who does not exist, is a sort of amalgam of other people's postings. Um, isn't some kind of superhero. He is essentially Robbie as Robbie would prefer to be. He's the Robbie who actually did go to medical school. Um, he's the Robbie who is just that much more charismatic. He is he is Robbie with the with the volume turned up a little bit and the lights turned on a little brighter. And yes, absolutely, it gives Robbie and Isabel a sort of fantasy Robbie with whom they can both more safely be in love. They become concerned about their followers just really because you start telling a story to one other person and then you want to start telling it to other people. Um, it just makes it that much more real. But But they're really, really creating and continuing to create and refine Wolf for themselves. And they are as surprised as anyone that a number of followers are as interested in him as as they are. I want to ask about perspective, because mm -hmm. the story was told through three days, um, but memories would fill us in on the past. And we were able to infer events that took place like from April 6th to April 4th of the following year. And the words virus and pandemic and COVID, they did not appear in the novel, but given the timeline and the conversations, we understood what was happening. But there were also moments when we were given a glimpse into the future. For example, like we know that Violet will one day embrace the habit of refusing to get out of the car, but she's not there yet. How do you determine when we need more from the narrator that we can't get from the, the dialogue and the letters and the texts and the thoughts throughout the book? Yeah, I hope that we can get or that I can write a story in a way that the past and to some degree the future are sort of contained in in the present. Um, I, I, I really try to minimize excursions into the past. I just feel like it stops the momentum. Um, and yeah, that, 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 that sort of moment when we see Violet in, in in the fairly immediate future. Well, novel writing is an inexact science. <laughs> and I did that with most of the characters. I did these little offhand, like one line, two line jumps into their futures. And it didn't feel right. And for reasons I cannot explain, I wanted that one little one for Violet. It's it's not it's not a huge thing, um, but I just felt like maybe because she's so young, she's just a kid. I wanted just a little intimation for her of what's next. But you know, every novel, every novel that I know of. Um, you know, um, 
has, of course, gone through a number of grafts. And by the time you get to what you have to call the final draft, there's a kind of pentimento effect. Some some of the earlier things linger um, and are not always entirely explicable, but they but they kind of does this make sense? They, they kind of feel like the layered life of the novel as it has gone through its various incarnations. And you don't always know what you're doing or why you're doing it. Sometimes you do. We have talked about a lot. Is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked? Oh, this is great. This is really very interesting. Good questions. So the novel that you put aside to write this one, are you going back to it? Um, you know, the jury is out on that one. I'm going to have to wait and see. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I, I certainly didn't put away because I thought it was intrinsically terrible. You know, I, I kind of think that of every novel as I'm writing it, but it, you know, I, I didn't. Um, it was really because it suddenly felt like it was set in a time that didn't make any sense anymore. And I don't know. I mean, I would, I would hate for it just to be gone. But it, it's funny. Um, a novel takes as long as it takes to write. There's no, well, you can't rush it. You shouldn't rush it. But there is, when you're writing a novel, a, 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 a certain sort of, um, there is a certain clock ticking, um, a big clock that ticks very slowly. But you are, even in sort of slow motion, in a kind of race against the day when the thing you're working on no longer feels like an all you want to write anymore. That, that was something you used to want to write. If, you know what I mean? And did this, um, I haven't looked back at the, at the previous one yet. And, and, and we'll see, we'll see. Um, maybe yes, and maybe that one just, um, just goes away. It happens. Well, the novel is titled Day. Michael Cunningham, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. That was Michael Cunningham, author of the book Day, which was published by Random House. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Goulet.